0: So uh this is Doug and I'm uh, gonna be given a little review, uh trying to go over section one of Anti-Oedipus uh paragraph by paragraph. Um I've got uh Sandruice here by uh text in the chat. Uh doesn't have a microphone working right now, but um they will be here on this journey with me. Um so yeah, feel free to uh, type in any comments or questions in the chat, Sanjurice, and I will uh, say them out loud so they get recorded. Or let me know now if you don't want me to do that. Uh, if you uh, yeah are opposed to having your things read out loud, just let me know. That's fine, too. Um, so um, yeah, I guess I'll just jump right into it. Um, so basically, I have been super interested in Deleuze and Deleuze and Guattari since sometime maybe around last September. I think I saw a blurb for this book and saw it described as uh, this sort of anti-fascist manual and, you know, uh, of rooting fascism out of our very, uh, you know, Um, worldviews, and and um, that was really intriguing to me, but I am right now a graduate student getting my PhD in theoretical physics, and I have taken one class of philosophy uh, as an undergrad over 10 years ago. So it's been a long road for me to even get up to this point of starting to read the first section of Anti-Oedipus. Um, I, about this book and difference in repetition and the logic of sense, which are DeLiz's uh, two earlier, uh, original philosophy, te- uh, books, um, those, he'd also done several more history, history of philosophy texts, uh, analyzing specific thinkers. Um, and, uh, yeah, let's see, just, uh, getting through the preface and the introduction was, you know, some hard work for me but for me it was really worth it to kind of just get myself more acclimated to the milieu of uh anti because it's really a unique text and i really just didn't know too much about it um you know what the actual content is and and so to start Trying to go paragraph by paragraph that was literally where I started was the table of contents, noticing that uh, these sections are broken up into these subsections and uh, just trying to match that paragraph by paragraph and help myself find some of this structure to understand what the heck these two crazy guys are talking about. Um, So just starting... Right on page one, we know that we're starting, this is a book divided into four parts. The authors themselves have not written any preface or introduction, as far as I know, uh, You know, at least not in the English version. I don't think the French version has any uh, front matter written by the authors either. All we've got to go on are the title, Anti-Oedipus, Capitalism, and Schizophrenia, Uh the fact that there are four main uh, chapters of this book, and uh, you know the fact that the book is totals almost four hundred pages, and there's only four chapters tells you uh, this is going to be some dense stuff. Uh, so there's four chapters. First is the Desiring Machines. Second is on psychoanalysis and familialism. Third is savages, barbarians, and civilized men. And fourth is introduction to schizoanalysis. And if you're anything like me, you kind of want to jump right to there. But, uh, well, I've tried that, and I don't get very far when I do that. So I think it's really worth it to try to work through uh, this text and really follow their thought as it develops as best we can. And, you know, if at some point you start getting some momentum up and you realize, you know what, I can kind of skim or even skip and, you know, start. Go and start reading, maybe just, uh, you know, start reading not as closely or not reading as much and get somewhere further that you want to go. That's cool. But, um, yeah, my plan is to go through pretty in-depth. So, chapter one, the desiring machines. All right. That's a, a phrase. Don't know what that means right off the bat. Section one, desiring production. All right. So, there's a lot of stuff about desire. Um... Oh, we've got Lou coming in and typing in the chat. What's up, Lou? Turn my mic sensitivity down. Good. Thanks for the tip. Now I just have to figure out how to do that. Mic test. Okay, um, so, so far I have read the name of the first section, Desiring Production. Um, it is at work everywhere, functioning smoothly at times, at other times, and fits and starts. That's the first sentence, and it starts with the word it. Now my volume's too low. Uh guys, you're killing me. All right, I guess I was at 100 before and I'm at 50, so I think we know what that means. Okay, is that better? Sweet. So, first sentence starts with the word it. What the hell is it? Um, This is honestly debatable. This is, some people have given me the answer that it is the id, and that makes sense. Um, Well, let's see if that makes sense. It's everywhere, functioning smoothly at times. Uh, It's performing all of these uh, vital activities of life and uh, the reproduction of life, at least potentially. Uh, But It's a mistake to have ever said the id. So maybe whatever this thing that is called the id by psychoanalysts is, uh, whatever it is, it is everywhere and it's functioning in these different ways. Um, But it's not the id. What is it? It is machines everywhere and real ones. So... um, to me, this is a kind of uh, setting up an almost informal, logical system where machines is kind of this uh, variable term that we fill in with lots of different particulars, uh, and they are real particulars, and what kinds of machines? Organ machines. We're talking a lot about people, humans, our bodies. Um, Our organ machines are plugged into energy source machines. It sounds just, you know, very uh, physical. uh, There's a flow of energy that is interrupted by the organ machine, and it is going to do something with that. We'll find out. Um, What's the next example, though? The breast is a machine that produces milk, and the milk machine coupled to it. That's a... rather interesting example is uh, we are more keenly attuned to uh, the difference of this sentence from the previous ones uh, in 2020 than readers might have been in 1972. Um, he's talking about breasts all of a sudden. Uh, this is uh, the motif of Oedipal. Uh, the Oedipus complex. So, uh, yeah, we're talking about the, the breast and the baby suckling it, but also the child sexualizing their own mother and the edible complex and all that uh, stuff. That is this motif that they're starting to use to fill in particulars uh, to demonstrate what they mean by these desiring machines. Then uh, there's this other example with the uh, mouth of the anorexic. Um To me, the takeaway from that sentence is uh, that the function of machine might not be certain. It could be uncertain. It could waver between different functions, and we might not know what function it actually will exhibit until it does that. Um, Next sentence, hence we are all handymen, each with his little machines. Uh, This is introducing the motif of the... uh, bricoleur and bricolage, uh, which we'll get to later. Um, Repeating for every organ machine and energy machine. And also, this is um, for every organ machine and energy machine. There's pairing of organs that do things with energies that produce the flows that drive the organs. Um... And so this is foreshadowing what we'll see later in this section is the binary law of machines. All right, so we've already found out that uh, it, they, the machines, desiring production, the production of all these desiring machines is everywhere. It's all the time, flows and interruptions. So it is uh, permeating space and time. It's everywhere always. And it is the collective production of all these desiring machines. That's what Dulis and Guito are talking about. Uh, and what's you know, that's already a pretty neat idea how they even come up with that. Uh, you know, that's a good question. Um, but more interesting, we'll see is what they do with this idea. Uh, something is produced. The effects of a machine, not mere metaphors. They do not intend these to be mere metaphors. They intend these to be a real, uh, a real machine for production, grafted onto their intellectual product. They want this to be used. Uh, so. We've seen a couple uh, kind of Oedipal examples, several Oedipal examples, neurotic examples. Um, But we are in the first subsection right here. So if we flip back to Table of Contents, first subsection, the stroll. A schizophrenic out for a walk is a better model than a neurotic line on the analyst's couch. A breath of fresh air, a relationship with the outside world. So this is going to be, according to Deleuze and Guattari, a better model than those neurotic Oedipal examples from the first paragraph. Um, and I think this example they use here of Lens, uh, as reconstructed by Buchner kind of explains why this is a better model. Uh, there's the walk outdoors is different from being closeted inside with all these authority figures, or uh, at least constrained by these social relations, uh, power dynamics within these social relations with the mother and the father and the priest. Um, no, much better is to be free, to be outside with gods other gods or without any gods at all without a family and then once we get outside Deliz and Guattari emphasize first that everything is a machine and all of them are connected to those of Lenz's body so getting outside gets us to realize this connection uh, this schizophrenic connection this um, experiential blurring of the conceptual distinction between man and nature. The continual whir of machines. I really like this sentence down here. To be a chlorophyll or a photosynthesis machine, or at least slip his body into such machines, is one part among the others. Lens has projected himself back to a time Before the man-nature dichotomy, before all the coordinates based on this fundamental dichotomy have been laid down. So, Sandrici here is asking why those connections and experiences are schizophrenic. So, um, we need to remember that this is not schizophrenic in the literal clinical sense necessarily. Um, It's a broader, more general concept that does include that clinical sense as a uh, extreme case uh, that will be um, produced by capitalist repression. We'll find out later. Um, But in general, it is just this uh, freedom of both mind and body. And uh, freedom that dwells in and recognizes the connection and unity of the single mind and body with the greater natural nature it's schizophrenic in the sense that it does not have a stable concept of identity. It does not identify itself with just the mind or the body or the mind body complex, whatever it identifies itself with nature as well. That's the schizophrenia. So it's, you know, sort of philosophically playing with what if I really didn't believe I had a fixed identity? What if I was really, or, you know, and it goes both ways it's the self and nature so so, you know what if I really believed nature was uh, you know something that a schizophrenic might believe that doesn't make sense if you actually rationally think about it but what if you play with that and let yourself believe that and see where that takes you <clears throat> See Lou's typing here, what you got for me, Lou. Um well, taking a little while, so to not leave too much dead. Yep. Oh, news lens as a is read as a study of schizophrenia outside of Deleuze and Gutari as well. Ah, gotcha. Um Mm. I don't know anything about Lens and Buchner, so I would be very interested in, uh, yeah, whatever information you can provide about that. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> literally only know what's in Deleuze and Guattari's text right here, and um uh, using the working assumption that that is enough for me to understand it right now. Uh, I'm always open to revising that assumption. Um, Yeah, so I think what they're getting into is this uh, next sentence here. Uh, So still in the schizophrenic stroll. So we're still in paragraph two. We're still in paragraph two, the second paragraph of subsection well, they're not numbered, but it's the first subsection the schizo stroll. And we are getting so much out of this already. So what happened is that when Lenz gets outside, he does not live nature as nature, but as a process of production. And if any of y'all uh, are you know, philosophy students that remember your professor talking about the distinction between natura naturata and natura naturans, um, and you remember which is which, please tell me. I, I think that's something that, that they did not hear, at least nature as nature is one of those two Latin phrases, I believe. Um, And then I think they're substituting this process of production for the other, natura, whatever. Uh, um, But yeah, so that's, uh, this is a super key sentence here. Nature as nature, what does that mean? Uh, That means nature as what we think of as nature, the concept now, after the dichotomy has been laid down, now that we think in terms of man and nature as opposites, that is nature as nature. But that's not what the schizophrenic experiences. The schizophrenic experiences nature as a process of production. They experience uh, the real. They don't uh they you know, I mean a real literal schizophrenic uh, in the clinical sense can't turn away from their real their real hallucination, right? Uh and they can't turn away from that. Um Deleuze and Guattari are, on the other hand, talking about <laughs> neurotypical people catching glimpses of that and perhaps philosophically trying to turn towards that real, that real production process of experience. Um, I think they are doing a a real sort of, uh, uh, it's kind of phenomenology, but you know, that is, I think working still within the milieu of uh, man, nature distinction mind separate from nature um so i'm not even sure what to call it um i've lost my train of thought here any questions (laughs) don't see anybody typing so i assume that means there's no questions All right. Um, So we got to nature as a process of production. And I'm going to skip over, uh, expanding on what process of production means right now. That's going to be explained in in a couple subsections from now. So here we're coming towards the end of paragraph two approaching the end of the schizo stroll there is no such thing as either man or nature now yeah that sounds pretty schizophrenic to me only a process that produces the one within the other and couples the machines together notice they don't specify which one uh produces which inside of itself very vague here and that is because there's no distinction between the two so how could they specify which is which They're just machines coupled together, producing machines, desiring machines, everywhere. Schizophrenic machines, all species of life, self and the non-self, outside and inside, no longer have any meaning whatsoever. Now that we have had a look at this stroll of a schizo, so now we are done with the schizo stroll. We're moving on to the... Second subsection of the first section of Anti-Oedipus, and I've been talking for like 36 minutes. Yeah. This is a great book. This is a phenomenal book. I'm really happy to be honest. There have been so many times that I've just uh, gone Mwah! at the way that Deleuze and Guattari write things, and I'll be honest, I credit Deleuze with the philosophical uh, depth because he's the philosopher here, but uh, obviously Guattari's psychoanalytic background is uh, key to uh, this text. Uh, so, yeah, okay, gets a stroll done. We have finished the stroll. Let's give ourselves a pat on the back. What's next? Nature and industry. Now, this was a weird subsection to me. Um, Obviously, it includes this third paragraph. So let's start with this third paragraph. We know that this is in Nature and Industry. We don't know where the end of this subsection is yet. Um, so now, Dilos and Guattari compare these characters from Samuel Beckett to their schizos, Stroll. And just to note that I really freaking want to read Samuel Beckett now. If anybody wants to read some Samuel Beckett, please let me know. Um, so, whereas in the schizophrenic's case, nature provided the machines for Lens to s- project himself back in time and slip into, uh, here, Samuel Beckett's characters themselves constitute the machine. Notice that, uh, notice that flip there. But then, instead of asking about uh, the various gates and methods of self-locomotion which constitute this machine of the characters ambling around outdoors, these neurotics ambling around outdoors, these edipalized subjects... Uh, what do we talk about? Do we talk about the machines that matter? No. <laughs> talk about a bicycle horn and the mother's anus. Uh, what the fuck does that have to do with anything? That's what Glows and Guattari are pointing out. This is absurd, right? The the to get you from this picture of the outdoors to bicycle horns and mother's anuses is, is such a detour that we don't need to take. It's really not necessary. That's what Deleuze and Guattari are ultimately saying. Is, uh, they're saying a lot more than that. That's one of the things they're saying. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so yeah, there's this quote from Beckett. Um, and then... Uh, I think this is, the first, time, is this the first time Oedipus is mentioned in Anti-Oedipus. All right. It is often thought that Oedipus is an easy subject to deal with something perfectly obvious, a given that is there from the very beginning. That's, that's what is trying to be asserted by Freud in psychoanalysis, at least according to Deleuze and Guattari. That's why it's so easy to get from this picture of the neurotics ambling about outdoors to the Oedipal complex of the mother's anus and the bicycle horn. It's easy because it was already there. Why is it already there? Because of the repression of desiring machines, according to DeLutari. It's not really a given. It's really a, uh, well, it's, it's given by force, not given in the sense of being asked for. Well, I don't know. Let's see, I would say so. That's what repression means. If you're, you know, willing out of uh, psychological uh, misunderstanding, then you're being manipulated and exploited. So that is still a form of force. Uh, so yeah. But that begs a further question then is if it becomes from repression, okay, why to what end? Is it necessary, desirable to submit to such repression, and what means are to be used to accomplish this repression? And then, <laughs> you know, we're talking about the repression of people, but they literally institute or li- literally inst- illustrate uh, this this authoritarian aspect of this is what ought to go inside the Oedipal triangle. Mm-hmm. How many different Oedipal triangles would the actual uh patients of psychoanalysis themselves construct if they were given that opportunity to uh you know dig into this theory about themselves for themselves what would they put in the triangle um but there are more important questions than these because we are still letting ourselves get distracted from the machines go back to the machines Given a certain effect, what machine is capable of producing it? And given a certain machine, what knife can it be used for? Now, I love this example of the knife rest here. Um, yeah, you know that's a perfect example of it. it's not a complicated machine with diagrams that you'd have to read for uh, you know months before you could understand how to use it. It's just so simple that it uh you know the possibilities are opened up due to the simplicity also so that's an interesting point that uh simplicity both simplicity and complexity can open up possibilities Uh, possibilities for use here right for what the machine is used for I'll be honest, I really don't understand this next example here with uh, the stones and the pockets of the trousers and the mouth sucking on the stones. It's, I think, a parody of a sort of Oedipal motif again, and to me it just doesn't translate. Lost in translation. Um, I love this imagery here, though, at the end of this paragraph. At the end of Malone Dies, Lady Petal. So Malone Dies is another um, Beckett uh, play or novel. I think it's a novel, Um, which is confusing because then there's a quote here and Footnote 3 then references um, Artin Artaud. But it's, uh, yeah, Malone Dies is Beckett. I don't know. I don't understand. But anyways. Uh, at the end of Malone dies, Lady Petal takes the schizophrenics out for a ride in a van in a rowboat and on a picnic in the midst of nature. And this beautiful scene of the schizophrenics enjoying their day out on a picnic. What is it? It's an infernal machine being assembled. We don't necessarily understand why it's an infernal machine yet. But it, it's infernal in the sense of having revolutionary potential. Under the skin, the body is an overheated factory, and outside, the invalid shines, glows from every burst pore. So I think that that is the end of the nature and industry subsection, uh, and so that means uh, we need to interpret those two words, nature and industry, and what they refer to in that paragraph. Uh, I think nature is straightforward here. Uh, nature is now referring to nature as nature again because we're talking about Beckett's characters the neurotics for the most part so we're coming back to the present uh, where this man-nature dichotomy exists and um, industry is something also dichotomized from nature which industry is it in this paragraph the only industry is psychoanalysis so that i think is the industry being referenced by the title of this subsection and i think that's it i think that's the whole subsection is just that one paragraph because the next subsection flipping back to the contents we see the next subsection is called the process exciting how am i doing on time Eleven forty-six. cool so i believe that uh, Here we're on, gone through one, two, three paragraphs. The fourth paragraph is the start of the third subsection, the process. So this does not mean that we are attempting to make nature one of the poles of schizophrenia. So what does that first sentence mean? Um, So they are saying that uh, so we've got this man, human, right? Man or woman. This is just the unfortunately gendered language that they used. Um, we got this person or subject or self. I like that phrase. Self, nature, dichotomy. And um, it's when a self is going under the process of schizophrenia when their experience their being is in some way effectively transported back in time like lens was to before this conceptual splitting between self and nature arose and they experience themselves and nature as a unity. Um, And uh, so we've got one polar opposition between the self and nature. But nature is not one of the poles of schizophrenia, uh, right? Because the self is not part of it anymore. It's not like this extreme version of the self where the self gets lost in itself and is still opposed from nature. Nature and the self cease to be distinguished from each other in schizophrenia. And all the other possible ways of being and experiencing are opened up. So there's more possibilities more ways of thinking than just self-nature. There's, you know, whatever you can think of, uh, all all the different varieties of, you know, come up with some idea of a self-nature composite structure or experience or thought. And all the different ways that you don't even know you've got unknown unknowns uh, of what that could be. There's all those different possibilities, and then there's also regular old self-nature. So it's not a pole of schizophrenia; it's one of the many possibilities of schizophrenia. It's just. Inside of there. Yeah, we'll find out later what the different pole from schizophrenia is. It's going to be paranoia. All right. <clears throat> what the schizophrenic experiences, both as an individual and as a member of the human species, and I take that to. Um, just be referencing a sort of external view of the self from the present nature perspective um is not at all any one specific aspect of nature schizophrenic doesn't experience a specific aspect of nature but nature as a product process of production this is uh what i was trying to explain before as the experience of the real their own consumption of um, their sense data uh, to the point where uh, they're experiencing it before it's even been interpreted in a coherent way. They are experiencing somewhere up their own cognitive uh, functioning on a level that Doesn't distinguish between the self and nature to the extent that um, their social world that they are embedded in communicates to them, they should distinguish between those two concepts. Alright, so this is subsection three on the process. The process of production by nature. And here we mean nature which is kind of smushed together with the self in some way. Selves. So what do we mean by this process? How is this nature self production a process? Well, this is interesting to me. I underlined this word probable Here is probable. This is the first time I think they've said something uh, with not absolute certainty. I could be wrong. I'd be interested uh, in checking that up on that. I want to do that at some point. But it's, not- it's noteworthy that they emphasize that they are not certain about this. It's only probable that at a certain level, nature and industry are two separate and distinct things. From one point of view, industry is the opposite of nature. All right, so this is that self nature polarity except here talking about self human and the social many humans and the industry they create uh and how is it opposite from nature well it extracts raw materials from nature and then it uses those raw materials transforms them into goods and other things that could consumed by humans by selves um but we don't use all of those raw materials some of it Uh, at the very least, comes out at the end as shit. We shit. right? We return our refuse to nature. We dump our shit back into the river. Alright, so it's probable that at a certain level of things that this distinction and those uh, processes operating upon that distinction that I just mentioned, uh, it's probable that those are accurate ways of describing situations. But even within society, this characteristic self-nature, industry-nature, society-nature relationship, this distinction, this dichotomy, these dichotomistic relationships are responsible for the distinction of these different spheres, production, distribution, and consumption. All right, so... We you know what production is that involves this extraction of the raw materials of nature and the processing of them for consumption. And consumption involves uh, fulfilling our desires with the products of industry that inevitably come from some raw materials. Um, and distribution is just when production and consumption. Are separate events. They occur at different places in time or space. All right, and that's okay. We can have them occur at separate events because there are different things. But when we uh, pass to this more general level where this distinction is not valid, um, then these. Events we're trying to distinguish can no longer be distinguished, so we have to only talk about one event at a time and what is happening in that event. Uh, There is still production and consumption, but now this distribution process uh, has collapsed into a recording process. Uh, And this was very perplexing to me at first. Why recording? Um, Let's see if I can... Explain that and then I'll probably call that quits for this hour. Um, so mm. I'll be honest, I don't have a good explanation for this right now. Um So yeah, let's call it there. I'm going to call it there. We are at understanding uh, why it is that distribution has collapsed into recording when we pass from the present, when the self and nature are distinguishable to uh, either the past or just the more general perspective that allows for us to consider the past, um, where this distinction was not valid. So we had to collapse production and consumption into a single event and therefore there is no distribution process between two different events. There's only a recording process of the witnessing of the event itself. There we go. That's how to explain it. It's this recording, it's a witnessing, it's either a measurement or an observation, a scarification. It's the leaving of a record by this production and consumption and recording itself all happening. It's a single loop. Um, Yeah. All right. I'm going to call it there. Um, Does anybody have any questions, comments, thoughts, heckles, insults, jokes, memes, apologies, rants? Just go wild, folks. Let's go wild. What you got for me, Lou? Ah, yeah, it brings up a very interesting point. There's two senses of it, distribution at work in this section. Uh, distribution as a process, you know, this is the distribution I was talking about—the uh, transportation of um, the products of some initial extraction process. Uh, and, you know, this this um, pipeline of productions and transformations and uh, transportation of the product from its location of production to its separate location of consumption. Um, And that doesn't necessarily actually even mean spatial transport, right? It could just be waiting in time, it could be just a duration, uh, you know, leaving something to ripen. That's a form of distribution over time. Um, so anyways, that's, that's the physical sort of distribution process that I was thinking of, and Lou's pointing out that there's also a meaning here of uh, the recording of distributions as a state, as in the accounting of uh, the political economy uh, of and by the state. And I think that is 100%, yes, the meaning that they are implying here. Um, so thank you so much for pointing that out. And it's 11.59 now, so I'm going to uh, end this recording.